are listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and credo-Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with... Sky. Sky. In the house. You still got your tea over there? I got half of it left. Mm. I'll need it. You know, we got some new options at my house. I may have to sneak some of them up here, because they are delicious. That would be wonderful there's one that is pumpkin spice yeah and you know i don't consider myself to be a typical american white girl <laughs> but i like the pumpkin spice in october i gotta say it's nice it is it nice is, it is nice it is nice i've been I, I even snuck a swig of my wife's pumpkin spice latte from j&j coffee did yes, you yesterday and you know not gonna lie it's good i liked it hit the spot i liked it yeah, just full transparency. I'm yeah, so, I feel like I'm really opening it up on the show at this point. Yeah, yeah. Really, I, absolutely. I, I trust trust our listeners, mm-hmm. many of whom I've not met you, but you know, <laughs> there's just a trust here, and so uh, you know, this is microphone <laughs> therapy. Yeah, 101. Strengths and weaknesses. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So I got a random question for you. I hope I've got an answer. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I, I've been struggling lately on these. Th- this one, I really want to know about you. Okay. Legitimately. I'm just curious. <laughs> oh, boy. If you had to give a TED Talk on any topic, what would you choose to speak about? Is, is it too much of a cop-out to say Mormonism? Mm, too much. Mm. <laughs> too much. How about this? Is that your primary how, how area about of this? expertise? Do you feel like you know more? About Mormonism than anything else. Well, I know, you know a birds. lot of listeners wouldn't you say no. Birds. Yeah, not birds. Um, I, I'm actually pretty passionate about getting history right. Yeah. So this, I have pet peeves throughout history. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. So like, what inspired the American Revolution? Uh huh. And you know, everyone will say the king, and in fact, the colonists were pro mon more pro-monarchy than people in England at the yeah. time. Yeah. But we make it all about the parade and the king and all that. It was actually more about the parliament. Huh. So stuff like that, yeah. that I'm just like, oh my gosh, we get it so wrong. And then as soon as it's called pneumo history, history of how something's remembered, yeah. which is distinct from what happened. Once the pneumo history and the actual history gets so, you know, divorced, basically, that's when I just, eh, my hackles go up and, Ugh. Yep, you know, people don't read enough original sources. Yeah, I've got volumes on the Stamp Act Crisis, and uh, love reading those. I remember reading all of those and seeing the English side of the debate as well was really helpful. So yeah. maybe that. How about that? Sounds uh, good. The Constitutional Crisis that led to the American War of Independence. Yeah, let's say that. What yeah. about you? Um, man, probably how. To groom a beard. Um, <laughs> I need help. <laughs> are you, are you no. saying that because you're looking at no, mine? No, 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 no. <laughs> Not at all. Like, is it, am I Listen, that bad all, the cred- all the credit for mine goes uh, to my barber. That's that, okay. that'd be about the extent of it. Get, get yourself a barber. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not a niche guy. You know what yeah. I mean? And I feel like TED Talk is like, you, need, you have to be a niche guy. I'm too much of a generalist. So maybe that's what I would do it on. The importance of generalism. We need it. You know? Mm-hmm. Get your get your hands in as much stuff as you can and don't become an expert in anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
Jack you, of all trades, master of none yeah. with your brain. That's, yeah. that's, uh, that's the way I try to live my life. So anyway, awesome. but I, that's because I'm a pastor. So I, I, I do think pastors should they, be generalists. They, I think they have to be. We're always having to put out, you know, a million fires at once. It seems like when it comes to the ideas of the age that we're trying to guard our people from. So anyway, in fact, this uh, Sunday, uh, or not this Sunday, two Sundays from now. This Sunday, one of our other pastors is preaching, Russ Robinson. So if you're in the area, well, actually, hold on a minute. This will post after. Never mind. Just kidding. <laughs> so You'll this Sunday, yeah. relative to when the podcast is going to drop, I'm uh, I'm going to take on uh, critical theory Oh yeah, in a sermon because I'm preaching on Colossians 3.11. And uh, so I've been reading up on that. And that that is an area that I've I've – done a good bit of reading on from lots of angles and sides. You know, I've read the stuff that I very much disagree with as much as things that I would agree with a little bit more. And it's probably one of the biggest concerns I have for the church today is uh, people being swept away in a philosophy and ideology that they do not understand Mm -hmm. and not even realize that they're being swept away into it. And, uh, and just to be able to, you know, help, help our people understand truth from error and how to reason biblically on various topics. Um, not just on race, you know, CRT is kind of the big hot button one, uh, which that will be, that will be discussed because, um, the text in Colossians three eleven, you know, I think Paul is very much dealing with ethnic strife, but, um, yeah, I mean, any, any of the, what, you know, if you want to talk about queer theory or like any of the critical theory areas of study, um, we just don't realize how inundated that stuff is into our society and how easy it is to start believing that stuff without even realizing it yeah. and how to reason rightly as a Christian as we hear those sorts of things. So anyway, if, uh, you know, you can pray for me. Well, they should. Kind of a it, big deal. Yeah. Well, and it'll be on the podcast feed. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. Lord probably. willing. Yep. Okay. Lord willing. So, um, Okay. We'll see how that goes. But yeah, that's just the kind of, so right now I'm reading, you know, a book on, uh, uh, just came out. It's really helpful. It's a guy that I've actually benefited from a lot named Neil Shinvey. And I think he has a really balanced approach to dealing with some of these things, but he is, he has read everything you can read in the area of critical theory. And he wrote a book with a guy named Pat Sawyer who did his PhD in the area of critical theory. And, uh, they both, I think just have a really good approach and I've read lots of Neil Shimby stuff and their book just now came out. So I'm, I'm working through that, you know, and, and yeah. I love that. I love being, I love being a generalist. I yeah. love having the freedom to not really dial in on any, just one issue, but you know, read a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And, uh, bounce around and try to think holistically for sure for sure anyway i've got a creed for today yes please. it's been a while please i think we skipped ephesus yep so council of ephesus in 431 Uh, i think we did chalcedon well here's the one that preceded it so this is uh from i think august 431 we confess therefore Our Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, perfect God, and perfect man, consisting of a rational soul and a body, begotten of the Father before the ages, as touching his Godhead, the same in the last days for us and for our salvation, 
born of the Virgin Mary, as touching his manhood. The same of one substance with the Father as touching his godhood, Godhead, sorry, and of one substance with us as touching his manhood. For of two natures a union has been made. For this cause we confess one Christ, one Son, one Lord. In accordance with this sense of the unconfused union, we confess the Holy Virgin to be Theotokos, right, the bearer of God. Because God the Word became incarnate and was made man, and from the very conception united to himself the temple taken from her. And as to the expressions concerning the Lord in the Gospels and Epistles, we are aware that theologians understand some as common as relating to one person, and others they distinguish as relating to two natures, explaining those that befit the divine nature according to the Godhead of Christ, and those of a humble sort according to his manhood. So once again, unity of person, two natures, that Chalcedon will also further clarify. I actually remembered this time to also bring um, Brigham Young's comment on these creeds. Um, this is Journal Discourses, Volume 4, where the preface um, says, To the saints, the words of the First Presidency and Twelve Apostles of the Church, their words are as the words of God, their teachings fraught with heavenly wisdom, and their directions leading to salvation and eternal lives. Right? So this is, um, quote, the written embodiment of the fire of the Almighty that burned in his prophets and apostles at that momentous epoch in the history of the Latter-day Church. Okay? So to set that up, we have a sermon we're going to draw on for um, another thing later today in terms of Brigham Young's view of atonement. But this is what he says. He starts, um, we've, we've cited the sermon before, delivered February 8th, 1857, um, on the virgin birth episode and a couple others, um, where he talks about the world, you know, the, even the simple things of God are clothed in, are clad in mystery, right? Uh, to them, he is an unknown God. Uh, they cannot tell where he dwells, nor how he lives, nor what kind of being he is in appearance or character. They want to become acquainted with his character and attributes, but they know nothing of them. Nothing mm -hmm. of them. This is in consequence of the apostasy that is now in the world. They have departed from the knowledge of God, transgressed his laws, changed his ordinances, broken the everlasting covenant, so that the whole earth is defiled under the inhabitants thereof. Consequently, it is no mystery to us that the world knoweth not God, but it would be a mystery to me with what I now know to say that we cannot know anything of him. We are his children. And he says, of course, follow this logic. I know my parents all the way back to Adam and Eve, and you just keep going. Mm -hmm. Now we know who he thought Adam was. But anyway, either way, even if you're someone who says, Michael, God, he didn't really mean it somehow, which he did. Yeah. But, um, okay, the difference, I, maybe I should say this for the Christian listeners. This is the difference. It's not going to be a big difference to you. It's a big difference to Mormons. <clears throat> the only difference is whether Adam is a God or the God by which they mean the heavenly father, mm -hmm. which who has a father, who has a father, who has a father. So that's the difference, right? Yeah. The question is, where did Adam get his body? If there's only one way to have a child, right? Where did he get his physical body? Mm -hmm. And if he entered the garden with a celestial body, what does that say about his state of exaltation yeah. before the garden. Yeah. So the only question where it's different is whether he's the father, whether the Michael, the archangel who became Adam, mm -hmm. is the father of spirits or only the father of physical bodies. 
and whether the father of physical bodies also means he's the father of Jesus, yeah. both physically and spiritually. Yeah. yeah. So it's not a huge difference to a Christian, mm-hmm. but it's, of course, a major difference to an LDS. Right. But, of course, he says, this is how we know. It's so simple. You know, of course, it's just a bunch of idiots that are Christians that can mess this up. Um, so he says, track back your history. Now this, and this is interesting, in this sermon, keeping in mind what I just said about what he's taught about Michael God, we've covered this several times throughout the year. And I think it's telling that it's still something that the church won't touch, on, even in their gospel topics essays. Um, he says this, whether Adam is the personage that we should consider our heavenly father, the fact that it's even a question shows what I mean, or not, is considerable of a mystery to a good many. I do not care. This is Brigham Young, president of LDS Church. I do not care for one moment how that is. Mm-hmm. It is no matter whether we are to consider him our God, whether his father or his grandfather, for in either case, we're all one species of one family. Oh, and Jesus Christ also of our species. Let's throw him in there too. Make sure, don't forget him. Now, here's where he's going to comment. This is his commentary on this faithful biblical creed that I just read. You may hear the divines of the day extol the character of the Savior, undertake to exhibit his true character before the people, and give an account of his origin. And were it not ridiculous, I would tell what I have thought about their views. And then you can just feel the pause. Brother Kimball wants me to tell it. Okay, so you can see you know, these, these meetings weren't as boring as LDS meetings today, right? You can yeah. see, oh, come on, just tell us. You know, yeah, yeah. Oh, Brother Kimball, right? He, we've covered Hebrew C. Kimball before. Big deal in early early Mormonism. He wants me to tell, tell it. Therefore, you'll excuse me if I do. I have frequently thought of mules, which you know are half horse and half ass, when reflecting upon the representations made by those divines, who apparently are our brothers now, or whatever, mm-hmm. right? That's the, <laughs> according to the Neil Maxwell Institute. <clears throat> I have heard sectarian priests undertake to tell the character of the Son of God, and they make him half of one species and half of another. And I could not avoid thinking at once of the mule, which is the most hateful creature that ever was made, I believe. You'll excuse me, but I have thus thought many a time. So that's his characterization. But of course, he's going to tell, quote, the facts in the case that the father, after he had been once been in the flesh and lived as we live, obtained his exaltation, attained a thrones, gained an ascendancy over principalities and powers, had the knowledge and power to create, to bring forth and organize. So he even says create, I mean, organize. Um, the elements upon natural principles, this he did after his ascension or his glory or his eternity and was actually classed with the gods, with the beings who create, with those who have kept the celestial law while in the flesh and gained and obtained their bodies. It is all here in the Bible. (laughs) I am not telling you a word, but what is contained in that book, right? And then this is where he goes on and says, of course, that it's the, that father that gave Jesus the physical body, and that that is all the organic difference between Jesus Christ and you and me. And the difference between our Father and us consists in that he has gained his exaltation, has obtained eternal lives. That's all the organic difference between you and the eternal Father as well. Yep. So pretty different. Very different. <clears throat> okay, well, that was a good intro. <laughs> Let's get yeah. into Hebrews. Okay. And uh, we're going to be looking at Hebrews for the next two weeks. So this week is 
technically covering Hebrews 1 to 6, and then next week we'll be covering the rest of it, Hebrews 7 to 13. And we'll just walk section by section here, but ultimately what we're going to land on is the doctrine of the atonement again, because that is kind of what they're lining out for us in these particular sections. So they have the typical, um, well, yeah, and I, I, just the title of this whole lesson, just so you kind of see where we're going, Jesus Christ, the author of eternal salvation. So Jesus is the one who who kind of shows us what eternal salvation looks like, right? That's, that's what they're getting at with that. And uh, then they have the lesson again on how teachers can effectively teach your class. And they say, consider sharing with members of your class some of the impressions you receive from the Holy Ghost about Hebrews 1 to 6. Doing so may inspire them to seek their own impressions as they study the scriptures. So again, it's all about seeking these feelings and impressions. And uh, I just don't think we can highlight that enough because I do hope that LDS people see that their way of knowing truth is so radically different from our way of seeking understanding and, and seeking to know God. It's it's uh, it's not that we wouldn't have feelings as we study the scriptures, but the goal isn't just a internal impression as we study. The goal is the study and the knowledge according to the scriptures, and then conforming our lives, our heart, our love, our joys to what God's word objectively teaches as we come to understand it in the way that it was intended to be conveyed through the original author, who we believe was inspired by the Holy Spirit as he wrote to the original audience. Um, And thus it still has uh, spiritual power, um, you know, for us today. And so, anyway. The teacher can be a model, but notice never, not once this year, has the teacher been a model of exegesis, yeah. And a faithful interpretation according to language and yep. context. Yep, that's right. Uh, so I'm going to skip the invite sharing section. Really nothing big or new right. there. Well, they're just supposed to come prepared to share a verse yep. from Hebrews 1 through 6. Right. Just yep. one. Yep. Come and it's verse. meaningful to them. Yep. Not, you know, deliberate on the intent, you know, in, in terms of the purpose of the author of the book. Yeah. Just find a verse in the first six chapters of this text that's meaningful to you. Yep. Yep. That's right. right. Um, not a whole lot of seeking of understanding <laughs> yep. there, you know. Yep. Um, okay, so then we get into the Teach the Doctrine section, and we've got three major sections in this lesson this week, and we'll just walk through them, well, I'm sorry, four major sections, and we'll just walk through them kind of section by section and get to where we get, um, as long as you're good with that. So mm-hmm. the first section here is uh, covering Hebrews chapter 1 all the way to chapter 5, so it's kind of just that zoomed out way of, of uh, approaching it like they often do on these. And the subtitle here um, of what they want you to get from Hebrews 1 to 5 is Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation. And then they just encourage basically the class to do an exercise together where they write different phrases from the chapters up on a whiteboard that taught them about Jesus Christ and the verse number where that is fra- where that phrase is found. And it says, how does knowing these things about the Savior affect our faith in him and our willingness to follow him? Now, I did look at on this section here what they have in the individual and family manual, and I think that's pretty telling. They actually uh, put a different subtitle in the individual and family manual and that subtitle is Jesus Christ is the, and, and this is in kind of square, scare quotes here, the express image of Heavenly Father. And that, I think this is worth reading here. Many Jews found it difficult to accept Jesus Christ. Again, this is from the Individual and Family Manual. 
as the Son of God. Notice how the epistle to the Hebrews testifies of him. For example, as you read the first five chapters, you might make a list of Jesus Christ's titles, roles, attributes, and works that you find mentioned. What do these things teach you about the Savior? What do they teach you about Heavenly Father? Now, here's the key point here in this next paragraph, I think. What does the following statement from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland add to your understanding of the teachings in these chapters? And here's what Holland says. Jesus came, this this is his reasoning for why Jesus came. Here's why Jesus came into the world. Here you go. You ready? And by the way, fundamentally, you want to know whether a religion is Christian or not. Do they answer these two questions right? Who is Jesus and why did he come into the world? Okay, so Jesus came to improve man's view of God and to plead with them to love their heavenly Father as he has always and will always love them. So so feeding the hungry, healing the sick, rebuking hypocrisy, pleading for faith, this was Christ showing us the way of the Father. And of course, the way to the Father is the way of Jesus. And and so the idea is do the works and live the way Jesus lived. And that's how you get access back to the Father. Uh, boy, I, I just want to go straight to John 14 on that mm-hmm. point where uh, Thomas asks Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. And Thomas says, how do we get to the Father? Right. And, uh, and he, Jesus says, I am the way to the Father, meaning trust in me and mm-hmm. you, you get to the Father. Yep. And so it's not about following in the works of Jesus, it's about trusting in him as being the one who grants you access to the Father. Uh, also in John, I am the door, I am the, you know, the gate, I am, I am the, the way, mm-hmm. the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right. um, not, not except through doing the works that I do, no. but through me. Mm-hmm. And think of the three parable, well, the one parable in the three stories in Luke 15, the gospel, the center of the gospel. Um, does the coin find itself? Does the sheep find itself? And indeed, does the prodigal son or the other brother, the two brothers, do yeah. they find themselves? Yep. No. And and you you might, who, who said that again? Holland. Yep. Okay, Jeff Holland. He's going to be a theme today. Oh, yes. Um, you, you might... You, you maybe could sum up, and this will make sense in a little bit, that he says Jesus marked the path and led the way, right? Mm-hmm. And how many times have we, this has happened a lot throughout this year, and I hope uh, the consistent listeners have heard it. We will almost anticipate where they go. How many times back in John have we said, no, the way they cover it, Jesus isn't the way, he's an example of one who followed it. And here we are in Hebrews, and they say it. Yep. Yep, for sure, for sure. And so I, I think we probably just shoot on into the next section and then go ahead and get into some of the more you know mm-hmm. stuff from Holland because this is where it gets into some of the meat of the lesson. So, um, uh, man, <laughs> so many things. Before I do, let, yeah. me, let me just go ahead and, and read for the sake of context. I know this may be a little bit out of place, but I just want to read the beginning of Hebrews. Right. Well, that's, um, this was crazy. Hebrews yeah. 1 through 5. How about just the first five verses? That's what I want to read. And who is so, Jesus? Yes, that's right. So <laughs> uh, the author of Hebrews is laying out at the very beginning. This is a preface. You know, this is him laying out the whole point of this. It's going to be to highlight that Jesus is this true and better, uh, you know, Christ that we worship, you know, that he is this true God that we, that we adore. And, uh, he is the way into heaven. If you want to get into heaven, you, you do so by trusting in his priestly and sacrificial work. So just look, listen to how the author lays the foundation. Hebrews one verses one 
to 5. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, mm-hmm. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And we could go on and on and on about uh, the author just exalting Jesus as mm-hmm. the God that we ought to worship, uh, the true son of the father. And, and you know, go, go and reference the uh, Colossians episode. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, comparison, you sure. know, and, and this verse is even why a lot of people will deduce that uh, Paul could be the author of Hebrews is because of some of these similar theological themes that you find. But uh, when we see that Paul writes in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And here we see Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Um, Mm -hmm. The point that's being made is that Jesus is the divine image. He's the eternal image. Of, of God. And so in some way, and in, in who he is as the second person of the Trinity, he is this divine image. Um, and that is an eternal image. And so what, you know, the, the authors of scripture are trying to get at is um, that Jesus is not a part of the creation. That's, no. that's the point of these sorts of uh, uh, titles and and things that are being said of him is that he is above creation. He is the creator of the creation. Mm -hmm. And of course, in a Jewish conception, as we've talked about over and over, um, the creator is one and the creator is Yahweh and Jesus is the, the exact imprint of Yahweh. So this is just a way of saying one God, Jesus is the image, you know, of that God. So this is, this is the kind of verses where we develop this Trinitarian theology. Absolutely. Um, Because we know there that, you know, there is, um, there is, God the Son, mm-hmm. God the Father, mm-hmm. represented right here, uh, but they are one God, and yep. and would each be considered uh, in their persons to be the being that created all things. Absolutely, and, and notice God spoke by the prophets, <laughs> and did God ever say? It's also a high view of Scripture that they don't believe. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> that the author is modeling yeah. that it's not, it's not just whoever the psalmist is, you know, based on his contingent circumstances with no act, you know, it's not him musing about God. It's God speaking to us through the psalmist. Yeah. Yep. That's so good. they don't believe that about scripture. They, and, and of course, yeah, it, it's just like the Colossians Philippians episode, mm-hmm. but no, how does David Ridges cover this? He just says, well, it's because the son is an exact lookalike of the father. You know, he's a white man too. Yeah. And that he kept his covenants with the father and that's why, you know, he's going to do this work for the father. And um, in verses, in verse eight, this is what uh, Ridges says. Paul says, in effect, um, that the father uses angels as ministering spirits, but the son of God with power and authority given only to gods. Mm-hmm. showing that it's not only now. And um, we won't, just to throw this in just while we're at it, um, he literally takes chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, um, and says this is where Paul teaches that we can eventually become gods ourselves, um, based on DNC 132, 
and verse 8, we have the potential to become gods, but we are not gods yet. It was according to the Father's will in order to bring many in exaltation and celestial glory. So that, once again, just reading Mormonism straight in, in on, I could go on and on and on about Ridge's twisting this. No, this is clearly, it relates to the creed we just wrote, read, right? This is fully God, fully man. And notice that the divinity is not lost in the incarnation mm-hmm. because he upholds, this, this Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, they don't believe any of this. Yep. No wonder they have to just say one through five, find a verse, find a phrase, and move on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we get into the second subsection here, and the subtitle, so it references three passages of Scripture, Hebrews 2, 9 to 18, Hebrews 4, 12 to 16, and then Hebrews 5, 7 to 8. And here's the subtitle. Jesus Christ suffered all things so that he can understand and help us when we suffer. And I just want to read uh, for us from just one of these. We'll read Hebrews 2. I'm going to start in verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and this is a quote from the Psalms, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now here's where we begin with verse nine, where they say to pick up. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Which to the, make propitiation yes. for the sins right. of the oh. Right. And and notice what's who's not included in there. Mm-hmm. The angels, and once again, Mormonism denies the angel slash demon person or human distinction as well. Yep, angels and demons are only pre-mortal or post-mortal humans. Yep, yep. And yet Hebrews clearly teaches that the atonement does not apply to angels. Yep. So that's another point. That's right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so propitiation is, by the way, for those who may not know what that word means, that that is a satisfaction of the wrath of God. Yes. So it's that there is a just punishment due to sinners, and Jesus comes to make propitiation. He suffers the punishment. The wrath is poured out on him. That's atonement. 
and uh, it, he pays. He pays for our sin. He pays our sin debt, and satisfies God's wrath towards sin, so that that wrath is no longer turned toward us, but we receive grace and forgiveness through Him. And then finally, just verse eighteen: For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, so that is a beautiful passage of scripture. It is love it. Now let's see how this is dealt with in the manual. Again, the subtitle, Jesus Christ Suffered All Things, and here's why they say Jesus Christ Suffered All Things, so that he can understand and help us when we suffer. Notice there's no propitiation. And then he goes on uh, and says it, uh, Hebrews, and it says these passages, can help people who observe the suffering in the world and wonder if God notices or even cares. Perhaps class members could search these verses to find truths that would help with such questions. What do these verses teach about how the Savior responds to humanity's suffering? It may also be helpful to invite class members to share examples from the scriptures where Jesus Christ supported and comforted people in their sufferings. See also additional resources or show this video, Mountains Climb. Class Class members could discuss what they learn about how the Savior can help us when we face difficult challenges. So they want to take this passage that is on the condescension of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus taking on human flesh. Why? For the purpose of ultimately offering up his life as a as a sacrifice for our sins so that we can be fully and completely forgiven. And they just want to say, well, how does this relate to uh, how we can look to Jesus as an example when we are suffering, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, anyway, In so. fact, he suffered so that he can understand and help us when we suffer. Yep, that's That right. is the purpose. And notice, too, the heading, Jesus Christ, yet third line down, people are wondering if God, in the singular, notices or even cares, and I put above, which one? Yeah. So Jesus Christ God or Heavenly Father God? So if Heavenly Father can also relate to people in their suffering, did he go through what the Son did so that he could also relate? Yep, yep. Um, we'll get to that. But also notice how Im- abstract this is. What do these verses teach about how the Savior responds to humanity's suffering? Mm-hmm. It's it's just, it's there's not a concrete connection to the problem as yeah. the Bible teaches yeah. it in any way. Hey, time to play the Holland video? Yes. Well, uh, do, should we come to the end and then come back to that, or should we do it right now? Uh, I mean, we can shoot through the rest of it. If you let's, want to. Yeah, let's so. let's shoot through it, and then we'll come back to this because yeah. the rest of the time we'll spend on that yeah, one. It's all relevant. Okay, so the next we've got a section highlighting Hebrews three seven to chapter four two, and the so that's a big section again. So I'm not gonna read through all that. But the subtitle here is God's blessings are available to those who harden not their hearts. Um, so again, it's, if you want the blessings, then it's up to you to not harden your heart. Um, and yep. then I had just highlighted at the end of that uh, section, they say, what can we do to keep our hearts soft and responsive to the will of the Lord? Class members could share how they or others they know have been blessed because they have had soft and contrite hearts. So if you're not experiencing the blessings of God, that's right. apparently because your heart isn't soft and contrite enough. Right. And, and so just notice how contradictory those two sections are from each other. You're, you're trying to comfort people. <laughs> you know, Jesus, under, <laughs> Jesus understands your suffering. Yeah. And then you're saying, well, if you want God's blessings, you have a humble and contrite heart. And yep. so apparently your sufferings actually could be because your heart isn't contrite enough, um, which I don't know what that says about Jesus. Right. That's concerning, you know, because yep. he's, you know, 
<laughs> Man of sorrows, acquainted yep. with much grief. Exactly. Um, why, why didn't he get perfect blessings of God throughout his whole life? Exactly. Health and wealth and prosperity. Well, notice too, at the t- uh, top of this page, these are the blessings God wanted to give them, but couldn't because they, you, you can disqualify yourself from God's blessing here. Yep. Right. Whereas the history of Israel, we'll get into this with the, how they do Hebrews 11 next week. Right, where they turn it into a hall of heroes, you know, where you got to be tough like all these heroes. Oh, yeah. Rather than seeing how every single one of these figures, <laughs> right, apart from God himself, right, were such failures in their lives, in some ways grievously, yep. and yet God blessed them anyway. Yep. yep. But notice, God wanted, but he couldn't, because yep. there's laws higher than him, and one of them is the respect of human's agency. Yep. All right, let's shoot through this because we're running out of time. So Hebrews 5, 1 to 5 is the next section. I'll read the scripture because it's always worth our time to read the scripture. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. He was appointed, uh, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son today, I've begotten you. Uh, as he also uh, has, as he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's the, the text. And here's the teaching in the Come Follow Me curriculum. Those who serve in God's kingdom must be called of God. So they're taking this passage that, you know, if you keep following along, you see that, you know, really what's what's being developed and built here is showing that Jesus is the final high priest. You know, he's the priest through which his priestly work and his sacrificial work uh, is the once for all uh, priestly work for all who would trust in him. And so there's no need for any more of this. And, and, and yet, um, here it gets turned into, again, just this kind of life lesson of Jesus was, you know, apparently called by God. And so if you want to serve in the kingdom, you got to be so called you. by God like this. And then they, re- <laughs> yeah. And then they relate it to church callings. They say yeah. the message in <laughs> Hebrews five about priesthood holders being called of God can apply to all who are set apart by priesthood authority to serve in church callings. Right. It, I guess, I don't know why I'm surprised, right? Cause if we can do, literally do the crucifixion and get so many episodes and it's still Jesus is the example and you yeah. can too. Why am I surprised here? But once again, instead of this incredible insight into Christ's authority relative to all that came before, leading into the new and better covenant. They turn it into, he was called of God, and so can you be too. Yep. yep. He was a high priest. You can be too. <laughs> yep. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, no exaggerations yep. right here. Yep. And then under, under the additional resources, it really goes back to the uh, section on the sufferings of Christ, and it gives scriptural examples of people comforted by Jesus and their suffering from Book of Mormon, uh, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Book of John. Um, and then at the very bottom, and this will be relevant if we're able to get to some of this, they have the improve our teaching, and they say that the teacher should create a spiritual environment. Mm-hmm. When you foster a peaceful, loving environment in your classroom, the spirit can more easily touch the hearts of those you teach. 
what can you do to invite the influence of the spirit into your classroom? And then listen to this. Could you rearrange the seats or use pictures or music yeah. to invite the spirit? Mormon feng shui. Uh, yeah. But it's just like, <laughs> it's like, you know, could is it the seats yeah. that aren't arranged the way they should be? And the spirit needs your help. Yeah. The, I think the, the seats are out of you organize yeah, yeah. the seats. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, though, we're going to get to some spiritualism here in a minute. How is this? This is spiritualist, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like, first off, the spirit is super fragile in LDSism. Mm. Man, you just got to be super careful, constantly walking eggshells or you'll lose the spirit, right? And so you, we need, he needs all the help he can get, right? Or it in the case of Mormonism. So it can more easily touch your hearts if you invite it. Notice not a word about the text yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. Which, which even in Hebrews, right, the Spirit spoke, right? It's interesting. It's an implicit tr- Trinitarianism throughout in terms of even the citations. Yeah. And yet, no, it's could you rearrange the seats? Yep, yep. All right. Um, you ready for the video? Let's do it. Okay, so this, this is a video from uh, Jeffrey Holland, and it's titled, The Savior Understands Me. And it's given in, I believe this was a seminary. Was this seminary? Um, yeah, the seminary teaching manual. Yes. Um, and it is uh, really according to the sections that we were covering, right, really the almost the first one. three sections, well, but definitely true. more so true. focus on the suffering section. So Jesus, the author of salvation, and then Jesus Christ suffered all things so that we can understand or he can understand and help us when we suffer. And then God's blessings are available to those who harden not their hearts. Right. So um, so ju- we're going to let you just listen to Jeffrey Holland yourselves this time around um, because I think sometimes it's good for you to just hear these guys from their yep. own mouth. So yep. let's see if we can get this going as long as it'll load appropriately with our slow internet. It's important for every individual to have a relationship with Christ because salvation is a personal, individual experience. We do not save people by congregations. We are ourselves saved one individual at a time. This is a very personal relationship with Christ. The Savior understands us because he's not an abstraction, because he is a living, breathing, real Son of God, the living Son of the living God. People who think they've sinned too much or gone too far or, or been away for too long uh, and, and somehow can't come back into the circle, my declaration is no one can fall lower than the light of Christ shines. That isn't possible. I think by coming to participate in the in the the sacrament the lord's supper is the most dramatic way weekly that we can show that we want to identify with him and that in fact there will be a reciprocal gift and power that comes back from that as we come to participate and be solidly with the Savior in that act, that solidity and that engagement comes back to us. And we leave that congregation, we leave that meeting with a strength and a power and an understanding from Him uh, that we didn't have before. Part of it is because we understand Him better, but clearly it represents the fact that He understands us. My personal experience as well as my apostolic calling is to declare 
personally that Christ does know us. He has, he has walked the thorny, difficult, rock-strewn path of our lives. How he did that, I don't know. I don't know. He didn't have a divorce. So you could say, well, how does he know about me? Because I had one. I don't, I don't know how he, he does that. But if somebody out there has had a divorce, he, he understands. This sounds awkward to say, but God loved me in a sense almost as much as he loved his only begotten son. At least I can say this. He gave his only begotten son uh, for me. And that says something about my worth in his eyes and my worth in the eyes of the Savior and his willingness to go to Gethsemane and Calvary uh, for me. I, I, I'll never have to do that. I don't have to bleed and I don't have to die uh, for somebody else's sin and I don't have to be that lonely. But I understand it and I love it and I appreciate it. And what it means to me is that he understands me that he loves me and that he reaches me. So uh, I can't explain how that happens. I just know that it does. Okay. Yeah. Wow. You got 15 minutes to break this down for us. 15 minutes? You got it, brother. Okay. Like everything or just that? Get after it, man. <clears throat> okay. Just well, get after, let's just see what, see what you can do. <laughs> well, first off, um, salvation is individual, one individual at a time. It's interesting. Um, of course, where's the church in that? And mm -hmm. once again, we've, we've covered this throughout the year, how don't be fooled by how hierarchical and structural it is. Cause at the core, there's this individualist agency streak oh, yeah. um, that, that will rule the day. <clears throat> yeah. And will eventually cause tremendous problems and already is right for the LDS faith. I was just talking to somebody who, is, you know, faithful in, in the church and, uh, um, said, I, well, I should say that the parents are faithful in the church and said that their parents were pretty upset with, uh, the last general conference, mm -hmm. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it's like, you know, yeah. I don't know. I wonder why. You, competing authorities, right? For sure. Uh, notice he does the Todd White thing of God must have done it because he loves me that much. So yeah. we we are so great that we caused him to suffer, right? So we kind of, it was an of course, I guess. Yep. Right? Yep. So I, those that have, you know, been in like the sermon ministry stuff, we'll see. It's not just Todd White. It's an old white guy in a sh uh, shirt and tie, right? Yeah. He'll say the same thing. Yeah. Um, notice he'll say he knows he doesn't bring up sin. He doesn't bring up the fall. He doesn't right. bring <laughs> he doesn't bring up anything in Hebrews. Even they included in the manual. Yeah. They don't bring up how do we know Jesus? You know, monotheism, any of that. And notice he'll even some of the examples. The word game just says I'll never have to pay for another person's sins. Yep. We're gonna get especially next time. Yeah. You sure into about that? we're wondering if even Jesus paid for anybody else's sins mm -hmm. according to, to uh, I don't know, even uh, even some of the scholarly views today, like Blake Osler's. Yeah. So, um, who, by the way, systematically rejects satisfaction theory and claims the Book of Mormon doesn't teach it either, even though that's not true. So, um, and then, of course, it's it's interesting that he'll say he didn't go through a divorce. 
Hey, Holland, is he married? <laughs> if he has to be married to be exalted, um, and uh, indeed a polygamist um, as well at certain points of LDS history, or Mormon history, LDS history, yep. then that's telling. So, But notice, this is their atonement theory. Mm-hmm. Like, this is it, you know? So um, here's the thing. Um, I've got a lot here. <clears throat> Just to recap and then add to the map, right? So if you're just taking the Book of Mormon, you had the Universalist versus Trinitarian debates at the time of Joseph Smith, debating over the need for an atonement and the extent of the atonement, right? And this is where the term infinite atonement, which is in the Book of Mormon, comes from. It doesn't come from ancient white Native Americans. It comes from um, the debates that Joseph Smith is hearing himself. The Book of Mormon takes the Trinitarian side in saying that sin is real and we need... Justice must be satisfied, right, um, for there to be real grace. Um, but then in the Calvinist-Arminian debates, right, over the extent of the atonement, whether it's for the world or only for his own people, um, the Book of Mormon in Doctrine and Covenants 20 takes the Arminian side. Mm-hmm. Um, but notice in the Book of Mormon, it's still man's, in, even in some of the earlier prograde price, like the Book of Moses, it's man's sin and it's this world. Yeah. Well, okay, over time, right, with Smith, we're getting to the the God-man distinction, getting, you know, rejected. Um, and therefore, the Arminian view, that doesn't go far enough. God's set free. Well, even gods can fall, which I do think there's that seed idea in the Book mm. of Mormon. Uh, the salvation exaltation distinction, which then allows even the year of the publication of the Book of Mormon, starting with DNC, what is now DNC 19, the idea that there is no eternal punishment, meaning eternal, right? And uh, we see rejection of hell, even though the Book of Mormon teaches it. So everybody gets a trophy. All right. So that's, that's Mormonism today. Everybody gets a trophy, but here's the thing. They still have a somewhat, and it has to be somewhat particular view of exaltation. Now, given enough time, depending on your Mormon system, theoretically, everybody could be exalted, mm-hmm. right? And, um, but uh, even they will say not everybody, right? At least for this round of worlds and lives. So that's, it's a particular view of exaltation. So salvation's a given. So when they'll say, yeah, we, we believe you're saved by grace, it's because it's a given, right? They're not tying it to what they really care about, which is celestial exaltation. Now, also an extension we see even in DNC 76, from this world to worlds, right? And then you have the debate over whether Jesus's atonement applies for only this world, uh, DNC 76, 24 worlds, right? And then the understanding is that the worlds that the Father basically supervises on this part of the cosmos, the the Son's atonement extends to. But now you have this kind of view that all of humanity, in some way, uh, Jesus' atonement pays for, even going infinitely back in time and forward. So infinite, instead of where it's coming from, which is Christian debates that's talking about, you know, sin against the Holy God needing infinite atonement, right? It's now based on the who, who Christ is, it's, it shifts to the what, <clears throat> right? What, you know, the time, the cosmology, all that stuff. Now, it, even Bruce R. McConkie, interestingly enough, and this is why the angel point was important, he shows how the atonement extends to all life. Mm-hmm. So beasts, fish, fowl, and the earth itself. We covered that on the resurrection episode. But notice, he doesn't say angels. And you would think <clears throat> with Hebrews clearly teaching the atonement doesn't apply to them, how they would try to take that into account, but they don't. So here's the thing. 
you have all of a sudden getting to Holland, and we're going to get to whether he's going to have to himself, but how did he not lie? Well, maybe Jesus didn't pay for anybody but himself he, yeah. as well. Yeah. So maybe, you know, he did this word game of, yeah, he's going to do, do what Jesus did bef- before yep. and be, to become a heavenly father. And if he's only an example, then Jesus isn't actually paying. He's yeah. not, there's no substitution part. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get to an early LDS apostle, um, and I'll cover it as quickly as I can, who, who did just full-on champion the moral influence or the moral exemplar theory of atonement. But with Holland, it's, it's not even a very um, informed you know, version of it, right? As you're listening to that video, he's just being emotional and hoping yeah. the music carries the message. Yeah. So this is my view of Holland's view. The emotive, exemplar, subconscious assumption of atonement where you can use the word grace, but totally redefine it. You can use the word atonement, totally redefine it, and use savior, even though you don't mean it. Now, I'll put in the show notes for those who want that Blake Osler has what's called the compassion theory, um, but he, in his argument, refutes any form of satisfaction theory, Mm -hmm. right? So even a prominent LDS thinker today, who is, I'm assuming, a faithful member in good standing, um, will even talk of the the um, suffering being of unlimited duration. There's still a sense, and you see this with Terrell Givens, the God who weeps, right? That somehow the Mormon God is so distinct because he's emotional like them. Yep. They have made a God in their image who's not impassable, mm-hmm. right? But is in fact essentially passable yeah. and can change and indeed can fall if he were to choose and exert his agency that way. So even perfection can't obviously mean what that means. Now, interestingly enough, right? He said, I, I won't have to do that. Well, I've got a sermon from Joseph Smith here. Yeah. We'll have to suffer and die yeah. for other people. Exactly. Right. Yeah, where he says, this is uh, just, um, um, this is June, uh, June 16th, 1844. He's going to die, I believe, on uh, July, that, that summer. I think it's July 27th. Yeah. So um, this is Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith. Contrasting right. or... Adding to Holland. Yeah, we're going to see if Holland agrees. Now, once yeah. again, he's he probably thinks he can by by his one sin comment. Right. <laughs> by the way, he yep. doesn't he doesn't make sin a central feature. He says the scripture says, "I and my Father are one." Joseph Smith again. And by the way, this is how it reads in the journal. So it's going to sound like I don't know how to read. That's actually I'm just reading the words. <clears throat> the scriptures say, "I and my Father are one," and again that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one. First John 5, chapter 7, verses. But these three agree in the same thing. And did the Savior pray to the Father? I pray not for the world, but those whom he gave me out of the world, and that we might be one, or to say, to be of one mind in the unity of the faith. That sounds standard LDS even to this day. They're, they're one in purpose, mm-hmm. right? They're one in um, authority. It's like a position, right? Yeah. yeah, but everyone being a different or separate person, and so is God, and is God, and Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. Once again, extending... You and I are different, so are they. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, separate persons, but they all agree in one and the self-same thing. But the Holy Ghost is yet a spiritual body and waiting to take to himself a body as the Savior did. Now, uh, keep in mind, it's uh, also said, he says in here, that this, the Holy Ghost has taken up um, a body himself. And um, so I'll put that footnote in there saying he's already taken a probation and if faithful, he will go through the same things that the son has. Right. So one of these key sources that people who think that Joseph Smith is the Holy ghost will 
dig up. So, but at least here, he's yet a spiritual body waiting to take himself a body as the Savior did, or as God did, or the gods before them took bodies. For the Savior says, the work that my father did, do I? And also, uh, and those are the works he took himself a body and laid down his life that he might take it up again. And the scripture says, those who will obey the commandments shall be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We then also took bodies to lay them down. And I, I told Brendan right before, I'd bet my library that that should be take. But the, you, you get the concept, right? He's saying the Father had to do it, the Son had to do it, is gonna have, did it, uh, the Holy Ghost is going to have to do it. And we then also took bodies to lay them down, to take them up again, and the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God and of children and heirs, uh, so on and so forth. So the idea is, yes, yes, you will. And that's why I think he used sin selectively in the one place he can uh, kind of fudge. Mm -hmm. Because if all he is is a moral example, um, then, it, yeah, you're not paying for the sins of another. You don't have to do that because right. no one has. Yeah. And um, so, once again, if you th think about the system, right, once you have particular exaltation, universal salvation, God loves everyone the same, God's done his part, Jesus has done his part, the Holy Ghost has done his part, okay? And those are constants. What's the one variable that's changeable? that will determine whether or not you achieve the highest level of exaltation or not. It's you and your obedience, you and your faithfulness, you and your covenant status and your faithfulness to the covenant status. Okay. So yeah, that system is pretty hard to say grace. And this is why Holland, it's funny, even the LDS living article, right? It's like, he tries to explain what he can't explain or whatever. What did he, what was it? It was uh, super funny, right? It was, uh, let's see, shares what he can't explain. Yeah, it's just, he's very emotional. Well, he actually wrote the Encyclopedia of Mormonism article on the Atonement in which he says this, by living faithfully and keeping the commandments of God, one can receive additional privileges. Yeah. One can receive additional privileges, but they are still freely given, not fully earned. What does that, what does that even mean? They are always and ever a product of God's grace. I guess always and ever freely, but if it's your living faithfully and keeping the commandments that determines whether you receive the privileges, that's a wage. Yeah. That's a work. Mm -hmm. Whether they want to say it or not, you got to hold them to it, Christian. You got to say, what's the variable that determines the difference? Yep. Is that you or God? Could God ever say, even if you were completely faithful to your temple covenants, mm -hmm. could God choose to not let you be exalted? Yeah. No, his, it's not his choice. Jesus is their co-pilot in their system. Mm -hmm. And that's the most he can be. He can't become a God for them. He can only become a God for himself. And show you the way. Yeah. And and so now in Mormon history, right? I uh, Amasa Lyman. This has been fun uh, prepping this. Amasa Lyman, he is an early eighteen thirties convert. Mm -hmm. He grew up in a Universalist household. Uh, heard Orson Pratt, and of course liked what he had to say, which was you know how loving God is and man is so good or whatever. This dude. You got to keep in mind, this guy served 16 missions. He was made an apostle, ironically, to replace Pratt at one point. Um, uh, but he's he was admitted to the first presidency, okay, apostle, and he's preaching in the 1850s. He's saying stuff like this. Um, and uh, that the gospel is universal. Mankind saved through knowledge and truth. 
The more one comprehends universal truth, the closer he is to salvation. Jesus is a man of counsel, holy man, but would have been better had he lived rather than died. Continues, 1859, he was a holy man who developed his perfection through years of learning. He became the firstborn of God's children because he was the first to gain all knowledge and truth, and he would not be the last. He's an example of how to do that. Okay, And um, he's the one who, who said he marked the path and led the way. Right, that the shedding of his blood had no effect on the salvation of man, and that the only way he could be considered a savior was through his good example of learning righteousness, which, if followed by others, could save them. Right, so individuals save themselves for more progression. So he's an individualist view. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the example. Now, interestingly enough, he was also into spiritualism, um, and so he, he he was in the San Bernardino area, and there was a LDS. Um, Calvin Reed, who he did a seance, who supposedly um, through this Calvin Reed fellow, um, medium for Hiram Smith. Yeah. And so he had this spiritualist view, and then he goes to Europe and totally fits in in what's called the uh, Golden Age of Liberal Theology from 1860 to 1863, and really relates um, to the idea that the problems in the world are rooted in um, ignorance. Mm-hmm. Or darkness, and therefore the solution is true light, true education, the reforming light of Jesus, right? So he comes back, he returns from Europe, and all of a sudden some people are like, eh, we don't really get what he's saying, right? Making a long story short. Um, and so um, there was some deliberate confusion on his part relative to Brigham, but eventually they get word of this sermon, which he gave in Europe, in, um, in Dundee, Scotland, that was not only given in 1862, but published in the Millennial Star, which was a long-running LDS publication in Europe, in which he said that man coming from a perfect spirit father was innately good and could redeem himself by correcting his own mortal errors. Uh, so Jesus, in reality, only a moral reformer, an exemplar of great love, and that his suffering and death were not what was necessary for God's plan of salvation. Um, just to give two short quotes to show the how he really doubles down on this. He says the principle upon which God designed to save mankind is not um, based on, quote, the crimson tide of Emmanuel's blood poured forth on Calvary's mount, but by ceasing the perpetration of those wrongs which have brought misery, suffering, and death upon the family of man. And he, quote, would to God that I could awaken the world to a sense of the benefits mankind derived from his living. Don't focus on the negative. We don't focus on the negative. We don't focus on the cross. We focus on his life. Mm. We focus on his life, right? Um, now, when this uh, publication comes to Brigham's attention, I want I want to show the specific complaint from some of the other LDS apostles because I think it's telling. Yep. They say it contained doctrines opposed to God's word. What are some of the other things being taught at this time? Multiple mortal probations, Michael God, <laughs> that the Bible is what that uh, our Orthodox Christology, even based on Hebrews, is uh, likened to a mule. Mm-hmm. No. It's opposed to God's word, and of course his other brothers um, don't agree with it. So he responded that he found nothing in the sermon to be false or heretical, as he understood the doctrine. And Wilford Woodruff even cites a scripture in an attempt to correct. That's hilarious. Citing scripture to correct, uh, <laughs> you know, did you get Michael God in scripture? Um, so he um, basically decides to submit, um, and but the, his apology, his written apology wasn't good enough. So they helped him craft a stronger one. But I wanted to show, this is a line from the apology. This is published in the Desert Renews, January 23rd, 1867. 
I do, keep in mind, this is an LDS apostle. <laughs> this is first presidency member at a point, point. I mean, it's a big deal. I do most honestly and firmly believe in the sacrifice and atonement made by Jesus Christ in opening up the way of salvation to mankind, and that without his death, we would have all been lost. Um, now, he then is, uh, he's delivering a sermon to correct the error here in Provo. Uh, January 27th of the same year. And there's a line in here where I want to show this once again. He had done for us that which we could not do for ourselves, right? Which is, what are the examples? Open the prison, mark out the way, invite us to follow. We could not do that for ourselves. We couldn't invite someone to follow. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, now he... um, but he then decides, no, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I don't believe all these things. I don't believe there's the only one true church. He was very much um, what we would call New Age, yeah. theosophical, oh, yeah. right? So he's dropped from the quorum May 6th, 1867. He eventually will be excommunicated. But during um, this time, though, when he's just kind of disciplined, he's not allowed to preach, he doesn't attend, but he still believes. So he's such a, he's a model of the Jack Mormon, so to speak, or the, you know, the, there are so many LDS out there that don't live it at all, but they totally believe it and mm-hmm. they'll, they'll die for it. Yep. Right. So he doesn't att- attend a single church meeting for a long time and yet still says Mormonism based on true principles and uh, has one system among many that could assist in reaching universal truth, which for him was the goal. Um, he liked a Mormonism that pointed beyond itself. Now, um, he starts to come back and he connects with some people that he uh, had converted in Europe. Um, three of which are William Godby. I don't have enough time to go into all these guys, but they're really interesting characters. Elias Harrison, Edward Tollage. Um, Edward Tollage literally wrote a poem that makes him sound like a Thomas Paine, which is interesting. These men are all right. They're also starting to have issues of conscience with the leadership of the church at the time because they rejected the traditional view of the atonement. And it did it instead preferred to view all religions as having truth that lead toward truth. Right. They even traveled to New York City and also engaged in a seance with a famous spiritual medium named Charles Foster, who gave them a message from the other side, right, that they can come in and take over the church, right? They, a blueprint to change the church, right? The, these guys are the, you know, uh, forerunners to the church's civil rights uh, movement or, yep. you know, civil rights project. Now, they, uh, a lot of them, right, they're continuing to attend normal church services, but they start what they call the new movement or the Church of Zion, right? And they're having meetings. And Amos Lyman, right as he's getting active again, he gets linked to these guys. And so they start in Salt Lake to just have these Mormon doctrinal discussion groups and where they started practicing seances. And here's the thing. This is going to lead eventually to his excommunication, Amos Lyman getting excommunicated. Now, in after that, he's going to go on a preaching tour and it, one of the places he's going to preach is, of course, here in Provo. Mm-hmm. And here's some of the things these uh, four and others are, are um, preaching. Of course, universalism, rejection of physical resurrection, rejection of a personal God, a successive priesthood organization, the reality of Satan, the authenticity of the Bible, the efficacy of the atonement, and the divinity of Jesus. Now, each one of these from a Mormon lens, right? There isn't a God-man distinction. Therefore, right, Jesus isn't uniquely God in any any sort of sense. And of course, an LDS doesn't believe that either. LDS just thinks he's more, what, worthy. It's mm-hmm. funny, even in the Gospel Principles Manual, on the atonement, right, why could it only be Jesus? It never once mentions his deity. Yeah. So this is their goal, right? The continual study and the pursuit of truth, 
The kingdom of God will come through man, not God. And all religions are a means to help man learn truth. And no one dogma creed sect could assure uh, mankind's salvation. Now, during this time th- with the spiritual practices, they're claiming to speak to Joseph and Hiram and Hebrew C. Kimball <laughs> um, through mediums, right? And sometimes we'll have spirit contacts that will apparently give little messages, little telegrams from the other side to them. And there were some uh, for a while, right? There were months where they were having almost daily seances. We have in uh, Lyman's journal recorded nearly 200. There were some uh, periods of time where they were doing two to three seances a day. Now, for the LDS that want to say, man, that of course this guy would get excommunicated. I want people that have been listening to us throughout the year to hear how much, yeah, there's some differences. How much of that sounds so Mormon? Yep. And how much of that do we interact with on the streets today mm. among the LDS? I want to proclaim on this podcast, Amasa Lyman has won. Mm. Now, won the day for the popular LDS. Because how did they get around so much of their history in the baggage? They lean into new age. It's a path, not the paths kind of stuff. Now, one of the things that uh, he's studying, he's, of course, really influenced by a spiritualist who is really famous for number of decades, Andrew Jackson Davis wrote a book called The Harmonial Philosophy. This book had 34 editions in 30 years. Mm. I mean, it impacted U.S. history, not in in, in Europe as well. Now, he's studying Buddha, Brahma, Confucius, all this stuff, right? Now, for those who want to be like, oh, of course, that's so crazy. Joseph F. Smith, he's in exile because of polygamy, because uh, the Republican Party is finding a way to actually enforce the the laws. So he's in hiding in Hawaii. He spoke Hawaiian fluently. So he's there as an apostle, Joseph F. Smith, son of Hiram Smith. He is basically, he starts an MTC in Hawaii and we have notes on his side and then journal entries of missionaries. So this, he starts a school to help teach them Hawaiian and teach them systematically Mormon theology. And so here's someone who didn't get X'd. <clears throat> who taught this. This is during a lesson on the Book of Mormon, okay? And um, (laughs) Joseph F. Smith teaches that, um, of course, Jesus taught the Nephites, just the same as he taught in Palestine. And then he says this, that Jesus must have visited the Mohammedans, the Buddhists, the Chinese, and the Japanese. Therefore, he said, it stood to reason that, quote, the personages whom these people revered as Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius were really one and the same as Jesus Christ. And that he appeared to these different nations in succession immediately after his appearing to the Nephites, statements of historians to the contrary, notwithstanding. Yeah. So this this is someone in the church, and guess who reinstates Amos Lyman, uh, of course, post-mortal uh, reinstatement through baptism and restoring all priesthood blessings in 1909. It would include Joseph F. Smith, who was yep. president of the church yep. at the time. So it's it's clear you can trace the the lineage of the ideas. You know, yes. the, the ideas that won the day really were Lyman, and that's why we're dealing with a lot of his ideas today, and not Brigham Young, for example. Right. Um, you know, so it, it is fascinating to see that totally trajectory. And, and for those who are like, well, Brigham Young stood up for a more orthodox atonement theory. Let me just read just really quick. I'll put the full quotes in or, or the sources for this one click away for you yeah. in the show notes it's worth reading the whole thing this is this is the atonement theory brigham young is teaching at the time which one sounds more lds today mm-hmm. uh brigham young 
I do know that there are sins committed of such a nature that if people did understand the doctrine of salvation, so if you understand the doctrine of salvation, you would tremble because of the situation. Furthermore, I know that there are transgressors who, if they knew themselves and the only condition upon which they can obtain forgiveness, the only condition upon which they can obtain forgiveness, would beg of their brethren to shed their blood. I will say further, right, that they should offer their lives to atone for their sins, right? It is true, and once again, Brigham Young just kind of, well, shooting from the hip. No, he says, it is true that the blood of the Son of God was shed for sins through the fall and those committed by men. Yet men can commit sins which it can never remit. By the way, Brigham Young taught that women can't. So it's one of these weird footnotes to history that we forget. Brigham Young said that no woman is capable of becoming a son of perdition. It's only men that are capable of sin. So it's kind of the inverse of Islam, right? Where for in Islam, hell is full of women because mm-hmm. women are more inclined toward hell. In Mormonism, it's only men. It's very patronizing, I would say. Uh, but uh, so there are sins that uh, can be atoned for by an offering upon the altar as in ancient days. And there are sins that the blood of a lamb and of a calf of turtle doves cannot remit, but they must be atoned for by the blood of the man. Remember, this is in the volume in which the preface says to the saints, these are the words of God. He, um, in the sermon we read earlier, he comes back to this doctrine. Um, th- this, is, this is the same sermon as the mule sermon. This is given February 8th, 1857. Now I want... I want to point out, this is seven months, three days away from Mount Meadows Massacre. And there's not a sane, rational, informed person on God's green earth that cannot see a connection between this and the the mass murder that Mormons are going to commit in southern Utah, um, not even a year away. So Brigham Young says, take a person in this congregation who has the knowledge with regard to being saved, once again, saved language, uh, in the kingdom of our God and our Father, and being exalted, one who knows and understands the principles of eternal life and sees the beauty and excellency of the eternities, uh, yada, 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 and that he cannot attain to it without the shedding of his blood. So he commits a sin that he knows is grievous. He cannot attain to it without the shedding of his blood, and also knows that by having his blood shed, he will atone for that sin and be saved and exalted with the gods. Is there a man or woman in this house, but what would say, shed my blood that I may be saved and exalted with the gods? Hmm. All mankind love themselves and let these principles be known by an individual, and he would be glad to have themselves even unto an eternal exaltation. Will you love your brothers or sisters likewise when they have committed a sin that cannot be atoned for without the shedding of their blood? Will you love that man or woman well enough to shed their blood? That is what Jesus Christ meant. Mm. Brigham Young, president of the U. So that's this is the, that's the irony, right? What is the background atonement theory? Yep, it's this. This is the kind of stuff that's being taught. No, Brigham Young didn't get disciplined for that. Jedediah M. Grant, even though Hugh Nibley lied about it, by the way, this is one of the most documentable lies among apologists. Is Hugh Nibley said no? He was saying capital crimes are. are uh, could be punished by death. That's nope. That's that is not what Jedediah M. Grant says. In fact, he says uh, Jedediah M. Grant says that there are men and women that he would advise to go to the president immediately and ask him to appoint a committee to attend to their case and then let a place be selected and let that committee shed their blood. And he includes getting drunk among those. Yep. So, <laughs> what, here you have the range of atonement theory during this period. Right, goes from. Brigham Young's blood atonement to Amasa Lyman's what very distinctively LDS moral mm. influence theory. Yep. 
And yet this, if this isn't clear in scripture, what is? Once again, if monotheism isn't clear, of course they can get this wrong. Now, the last thing, and I'll make this quick. This is a little ancient history, but really quickly, by the way, Richard Lloyd Anderson's understanding, Paul, he says this, a suffering savior knows us better and is better known by us. And that the savior does not call from a distant height, but from a little ahead on the rocky path that his disciples climb. (laughs) And he lived as an example for all. So uh, Jesus filled the father's assignment, thus completed his godhood. So once again, even the Paul expert is saying basically similar things. Hopefully you guys are seeing this environment in which the intellectual environment in which, yes, there's little distinctions here or there, but of course the core of it is anti-biblical. Um, to, yeah, I, I have no, I don't know how else to put it. Yep. Now, interestingly enough, there was, and this should be more obvious than it is, but there can be pagan atonement theory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have a text that came to mind when I was looking at this, and I saw the manual and the Holland video. And once again, the manual saying, Jesus Christ suffered all things so that, meaning this is the purpose, he can understand and help us when we suffer. And then the just no sense of the real problem at all. Yeah. We have someone contemporary to the writing of the New Testament named Plutarch. If you are at all interested in the ancient world, you've heard this name, right? He uh, was born around 46, 45 to 50 AD. He's going to die around 120 AD, so completely contemporary. He's associated with the Academy at Athens. He's a priest at Delphi for the last 30 years of his life. He's a priest at the most famous oracle in Greek in the Greek world. Mm-hmm. And in fact, only one of two permanent priests there. And he is also a political biographer. In fact, his uh, parallel lives, right, is really helpful in, in studying the Gospels. Um, you, know, you know, he's pairing Greek and Roman figures, comparing them, and then the moral analysis. And I'm a big champion of the classical view of the historian as someone who analyzes things morally as well. That's very not in vogue anymore. Mm-hmm. But even his idea of chronology having... Um, a purpose you can see in the gospels, at least even if it's not direct borrowing, it's they're coming out of the same milieu, right? Now he wrote um, a selection of essays that we call Moralia Ethica. These are 60 plus some dialogues, diatribes. He writes on, you know, virtue and subordinating unreason to reason. He's a Platonist. Um, he actually writes, we, we covered this a little bit on Acts 17, right? Paul, the Stoics, the Epicureans. I just want to give a sense. This is someone who knows what he's talking about. Right, he's not just aware of the academy in Athens; he's associated with it, whether teacher, student, all that. He's a priest at Delphi. He understands the ancient world, um, and he's writing about it. And one of the more interesting things is he, at Delphi, you have this right. And this is so interesting for those who think covenant historically with the Bible. He's saying he's ans- he's getting questions, and he's writing about like why the oracles are failing. Where are the gods? Um, he investigates the cult and its deity. And once again, he, he is a devout worshiper of Apollo. He calls him our dear Apollo. Mm-hmm. And um, one of his guesses is that the gods may not be permanent. Maybe they're demigods. He calls them demons, the same word that Paul uses, right? Not quite gods of the first rank. Of course, it's a good thing he's with Apollo, who is. And that there's a coming and fading away of gods. And he actually writes a, some interesting dialogue about that. 
and that some oracles aren't functioning because the gods left or perhaps died. Now, he writes a text in this on Isis and Osiris, which, of, and for those who have read Harry, Larry Hurtado's Destroyer of the Gods, we have Isis worship everywhere at this time. We, it's not just temples. It's in private homes. They had a name, um, Isiaki. We had lists, depictions of scenes. We had rituals. We had items people wore. Some people shaved their heads. This was prominent worship that the gospel authors, the first Christians, would have been aware of. In fact, we have evidence of temples, I think, in every single city that we have a letter to. We have evidence of it. And and so here we have a contemporary writing in great Greek, like more similar to Luke's, right? Very good Greek um, prose that's talking about the worship of something um, that all the early Christians are interacting with, mm-hmm. okay? This is what he says, and this line came to my mind where he says, uh, speaking of Isis, After she had quenched and suppressed the madness and fury of Typhon, was not indifferent to the contests and struggles which she had endured, nor to her own wanderings, nor to her manifold deeds of wisdom and many feats of bravery, nor would she accept oblivion and silence for them. But she intermingled the most holy rites, rituals, portrayals, pictures, icons, and suggestions, and representations of her experience at that time, and sanctified them both as a lesson in godliness and an encouragement for men and women who find themselves in the clutch of like calamities. I could have switched the name to Jesus, put a few LDS phrases in there, and would that not describe LDS atonement theory. In fact, one of the scholars commenting on this said that the depiction of Isis as a deity whose own struggles, quote unquote, enabled her to be seen as empathetic toward those who face their own hardships in life. And that these moments of suffering were a means of benefits to the worshiper. Yep. Now, Paul would be aware of this. The New Testament authors would be aware of this. Notice, even in this passage that they're twisting, that is not the atonement theory. Yeah. And, right, the atonement theory is where, I don't know, they talk about the atonement, mm-hmm. which they've avoided all year long. Yeah. So it didn't hit me as hard until we hit this lesson. This is their core, the heart of their atonement theory. And notice there's no ransom. There's no satisfaction. All of it, that's going away. It's going to be the ISIS worship going forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you reduce the gods down into these created beings who are maybe just a step ahead of you, and uh, then what what need is there for right. reconciliation with a holy God, which mm-hmm. only He can provide ultimately? Right. Um, so, and yeah. in ISIS worship, you could you could worship other gods too. It was very inclusive. You could look at Buddhism and everything else too. Yeah. It was Christianity. What made Christianity distinct is you couldn't augment it. Yeah. And it required a fundamental shift in your religious identity and an exclusive belief in Christ as the image of the invisible God. In other words, the one God that's of right. the Bible. Yep, that's right. I think that's a good place to end it. Well done. <laughs> All right, so next week we're going to be looking at Hebrews 7 to 13, chapter 7 to 13. Subtitle is... And high 
should say, hey, hi, Breeze, good things to come. <laughs> we'll see you then. <laughs>